0: Hello, welcome to the Historian's Cut. The smallest show on earth, released in 1957, depicts a young couple who are plucked from their lives and day job in the south of England and required to operate a failing cinema in the North Midlands. The result is a gentle fish-out-of-water comedy, but what does it tell us about cinemas and cinema going in post-war Britain? My name is Phil Heaton. With me to answer this question is modern historian Dr. Maurice Brodie. Hello, good to be here. And cinema historian Dr. Sam Manning, hello, whose publications include cinemas and cinema going in the United Kingdom: Decades of Decline, nineteen forty-five to nineteen sixty-five. So, well, Sam, I'll start with you first. Um, we're going to be talking about Britain in the nineteen fifties today. The nineteen fifties, maybe for some of us, is something of a forgotten decade. What came after World War Two, but before the sixties got going. So. Maybe Could you just give us a taste of the historical context that the film is set against, maybe by just taking that year, 1957, and telling us a few other things that happened in that year?
1: Yeah, so the film was released in uh, April 1957. Earlier in that year, Harold uh, MacMinnon became uh, Prime Minister, and then later that year he gave a famous speech where he declared that uh, most Britons have never had it so good. Um, and I think that's important because it shows that this film was released against a background of growing affluence and and rising wages uh, in Britain. Although the, I think it's important that you said most of uh, most Britons have never had it so good. Obviously, there was still a significant number of people who were who were still struggling. But I think generally um, the decade is associated with growing affluence.
0: Okay, well maybe the reason why it's not so well known because increasingly growing affluence is not quite as dramatic as world war or the swinging sixes but well we'll leave that for 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 another occasion sam i gave a short summary of the film but as maybe this isn't such a well-known film um could, could you expand on what i said earlier and maybe also give us a bit more background about when it was released and its reception at the time
1: yeah absolutely so the film uh the film was directed by basil dearden who had worked with Ealing uh, earlier in the decade and, and directed many films for them. He went on to make other films that looked at more serious social issues. So he directed a film called uh, Victim, which looked at attitudes towards um sexuality and, in Britain. But uh, I suppose this is one of the few um, um, comedies that he, he did. Um, The film was... Um, executive produced by uh, Launder and Gilead, who produced many other um, films in post-war in post-war Britain. And I think the film's really, although it wasn't produced by Ealing, it kind of sits in that tradition of uh, Ealing comedies of the kind of the clucky underdog um, overcoming uh, a rival to win out in the end.
2: Yeah, yeah in terms
1: I, of
0: the the res- sorry, of- sorry Sam, just to interrupt. So um, you gave us one thing that characterises Ealing comedy is the plucky underdog but again for people who might not be familiar with the genre what does that phrase Ealing comedy conjure in your mind at least I think it conjures
1: a kind of um a very kind of yeah British sensibility of um overcoming the the odds um kind of vying for the the underdog you know, people, you know, using their, their spirit to uh, overcome almost impossible uh, ends. So I think when people think of alien comedies, they think of things like uh, The Man in the White Suit, uh, Whiskey Galore, those kinds of films.
0: OK, and you were just going to tell us a bit about the release as well, I think.
1: Yes. Yeah, so um, the the film was um, a relative commercial success when it was uh, released. Um from the reviews I've looked at, I think people were generally favourable um, uh, towards it and praised the fact that it was willing to take the Mickey out of 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 cinema. Um, people, especially, prefer, um, praised the performances of of Peter Sellers and, and Margaret Rutherford, whose characters we might talk about a bit a bit later. So, as those people who were more critical of the film tended to see it as a more generic comedy that was perhaps a bit too um similar to those those ealing comedies but i'd say overall the reviews were were positive and it it seems like it was a relative success with uh, with cinema goes as well and so and then
0: just finally in a nutshell the plot
1: yes so um like you said at the, the beginning of the podcast uh, a young couple who are called uh, matt and Gene spencer inherit uh, a flea pit cinema for a long lost relative there is uh, a larger cinema in that that town, which is run by a local entrepreneur named named Hardcastle. He wants to buy the um the Bijou, which is the name of the cinema they inherit, to knock it down and turn it into a car park. But the Spencers reopen the cinema to prove that it, it can be a going concern and to, to inflate its value, um, so they can make more
0: more money from their from their inheritance. Okay, uh, I think that's probably enough for now. So let's start with our first question to kind of probe what can this small show on earth tell us about cinemas and cinema going in post-war Britain. The film is dom- dominated by these two cinemas, the Flea Pit um, cinema, the Bijou on the one hand, and the, is it called the Grand Sam? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, on the other. So this suggests that the 1950s is a time of of. Of changing practices in cinema going, all this closing down being replaced by fancy new ones, is this a fair description of the fifties, Sam? Just to to get us going.
1: Well, the the nineteen fifties was certainly um, a period of decline for for cinemas. To put it into some kind of context, um, so cinema attendance peaked in the UK in nineteen forty six when there were one point six billion uh, admissions. This declined quite slowly for the rest of the, the 40s. Above so the beginning of the 50s, there were uh, 1.4 billion cinema emissions. But this really declined dramatically during the 1950s for a range of reasons, including the, the emergence of television, uh, improved housing conditions, the diversification of, of leisure activities. These things drew people away from the cinema. And, uh, and by the end of the 1950s, cinema emissions stood at only around 500 million. Uh, and obviously, with the decline cinema emission, also came the closure of many um, cinemas, um, and these were far more likely to be the the smaller independent cinemas, you know, places like the Bijou rather than the the Grand.
0: My maths isn't the greatest, Sam. So just go through those figures again. So at the beginning of the decade, it was.
1: Uh, so at the beginning of the 1950s, it was about 1.4 million, but by 1960, it was around 500 million. So just over a third of what it was in the space of only um, ten years, uh, and I guess just to put that in context for for some of the the listeners, cinema emissions um, now, or, or at least in twenty nineteen, uh, were about one hundred and fifty million. So by today's standards, you know, still um, you know a much larger number of cinema emissions. But I think the key factor is that they were uh, in free fall throughout the nineteen fifties.
2: Sam, um, you mentioned television there and the impact it had on, on cinema exhibition and I think um, Mr Hardcastle in, in the film also mentions it. I know it's a kind of debate amongst some historians about the extent to which television had a kind of detrimental impact on cinema going and um, do you have any particular views on on that particular subject?
1: Yeah I think a kind of um, a kind of simplistic view is that you know television came and suddenly overtook cinema. There's a direct causal relationship between the two. Um, there's no doubt that television ownership increased significantly throughout the 1950s and did impact cinema attendance, but I think the story is a little bit more complicated than than that. So, for instance, before I mentioned, the 1950s is a period of, of affluence, so the fact that people had more money meant um, that they were able to buy televisions their housing conditions also became better, so they were more uh, willing to, to stay at home. You also need to look at the so differences in the type of television that was being shown. So at the beginning of the 50s, uh, only BBC was available, but then from 1955, ITV was introduced, which uh, had a greater focus on on entertainment and really appealed more to, to working-class patrons. There was also a lot of uh, population shifts at this time, so people were... Often moving away from you know crowded inner city areas out into into suburbs where there are fewer cinemas uh, and and again investing more in their in their homes and more willing to spend uh, time at home. There are also big differences in terms of the impact of television on uh, different generations. So for instance, the the older um, generation were more likely to to stay at home, whereas uh, for younger people, the cinema still. You know held a really important social purpose. it was a place to escape from the house um, and to meet friends and, and to meet people of the the opposite sex so I mean certainly you know television did have a huge impact on on cinema attendance, but we need to see it in a in a wider context alongside uh, a range of other factors.
0: I think some of those some of those things will be picking up later, so for example, hopefully we'll get round to talking about um the fact that there were a lot of young people in, in, in the Bijou. That seemed to be one of the the main audience it was bringing in, but we'll maybe part that one for now. Something I'm interested in is, so set against the competition that television was was providing, what made somewhere like the Grand fare better than the Bijou? So what like watching it, Sam, did you pick up on any specific things that the Grand was offering to the public that the Bijou wasn't?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think anyone who watches the film will be able to see, well, it's immediately clear that the Grand is a much more um, luxurious venue. Um, It's uh, larger. um, It has uh, better decor. It just looks like a more, I suppose, sophisticated uh, venue. Also, the technology was, was far better. So one of the things... Um, you'll notice in the Bijou is that it only has, uh, as an older cinema, it only has a very small screen that would only be able to uh, accommodate films in a in a four three ratio. So one of the key things that happened in the nineteen fifties was the introduction of a cinemascope and widescreen films, which were designed to sort of counter television, uh, and those wouldn't have been able to have been screened in the Bijou, but they would have been able to have been in screened in the Grand. I mean, the Grand also has kind of a lot of the, you know, kind of entrapments that you would associate with a Grander cinema. So, for instance, you see uh, the organ coming out of the the floor for entertainment during the, the interval. Um, and somewhere like the Bijou just doesn't have the, the capacity to, to accommodate that kind of thing, to offer that kind of service.
0: That all sounds quite expensive. So Woods, so again, trying to fit it into what you're saying about the um, increasing affluence. Did people have more money and they were prepared to to spend more to to get like a higher level of entertainment, or could you give us any kind of estimate or kind of sense of the difference in price that going to the grand might be compared to going to the BG? I
1: guess yeah. I mean, firstly, you know, cinemas were differentiated by price, and you you paid more to go to nicer venues and to see the the films first um, projected in 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 better conditions. I think you're right to say that throughout the 1930s, there was a greater emphasis on choosing a cinema and being prepared to pay more for it. So let's say at the beginning of the 1950s, cinema was a far more habitual thing. People might have gone to their local neighbourhood cinema just because it was the thing to do. Towards the end of the 1950s, what you see is more people being more discerning about their, their cinema going. So they might go less because there are, Greater leisure activities available to them, but when they do go, they're more likely to go to the larger, grander cinemas, and they'll be able to. they be sorry, they be prepared to pay um, pay more for them. I mean, in in the film, um, the the prices at the Bijou are mentioned. So there are three uh, ticket categories, uh, and one is sixpence, the uh, other is ninepence, and one is uh, one shilling and, and twopence. So there was also kind of price differences within cinemas. So um, you would pay more to sit in the the balcony than you would in the in in the, in the stalls. The prices at the Grand aren't aren't given, but needless to say, it would be significantly more expensive than the than the Bijou.
2: You mentioned Sam the kind of cinema capitalism almost between the the two cinemas in the film, in terms of the equipment and the screen size and things like this. Was there? evidence of any kind of difference in the clientele in these areas in terms of you, mean, you mentioned young people going more than than uh, older people would that be kind of reflected as well in, in the kind of difference between uh, the two types of cinemas
1: yeah i mean ab- absolutely you know the fact that places like the grand cost more means that they would attract more you know upmarket clientele People would be more likely to to travel to them where somewhere like the Bijou would be seen more as a, a neighbourhood cinema that you would go simply because it was uh, because it was on your on your doorstep. I and mean, then you can see the kind of clientele that go to the Bijou in the in the film. Perhaps we'll discuss that um, we'll discuss that a bit a bit later on. Yeah, but there's also there's also differences, I suppose, in in screenings so uh, and in times of attendance so. I suppose adults might be more likely to go on the evenings and in the weekends, um, whereas you know children would go to um, you know Saturday morning matinees, and young women might go in the daytime after shopping trips and 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 that that kind of thing. So you know cinemas would attract different crowds depending on the I suppose the time and date of the of the screening.
2: I think it's interesting how, in in many ways, sometimes. The rise of the the multiplexes in the kind of nineteen nineteen eighties, I suppose, kind of marks a kind of nail in the coffin in terms of the more traditional cinemas. But it's interesting in, in this film how the larger cinema, which is viewed as a kind of big uh, establishment, the building itself, I think, is from the nineteen thirties, and then the the Bijou is uh, is kind of based supposed to be around even earlier than that. So it, it's interesting that. There's still the kind of battle between old and new, even even in the 1950s, as opposed to to later periods.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not specified exactly when the the bijou was was built, but we know it's old. Um, firstly, because it looks like it has a more you know Victorian or Edwardian decor. Um, it's also mentioned that in the past it's been used as a, as a musical, and we also know that it's had several other names in the in the past. So I think we can assume that it's from around the around the turn of the century the grand meanwhile i think it's was very was very clearly looks as if it was built in the in the 1930s which was a real kind of period of, of boom for, for cinema building lots of the kind of art deco cinemas that we you know see as being picture palaces were built in the in the 1930s and in fact the cinema that was used for the grand in the film is the, the hammersmith odeon which uh was built in the in the early 1930s and still stands uh, but, but as a as a music venue but yeah, it's, it's interesting that you know um, no new cinemas were actually really built or not many cinemas were built after the after the 1930s firstly obviously because of the the war uh, and then building restrictions firstly after the war prevented lots of new cinemas from being built but also there wasn't the um the demand to build a lot of new cinemas uh, after the after the war
0: so Sam, I think I've just got one more question before we move away from this theme of you know nineteen fifties being a a time of a time of change. I, I think a scene that I found really interesting in the in the film is um it's about two thirds of the way through, isn't it? It's when um the staff after hours put on a, a silent a silent film. I what what did you make of that? Why why was that in the film and what would audience members watching the smallest show on the uh, the smallest show on earth what what would they have made of it as well
1: yeah i think it's definitely one of the most uh, effective scenes in the film the the elderly staff at the bijou stay after the cinemas uh closed they put on an old silent film called um coming through the ryan and miss fazakli plays the the piano along to it so i think it's showing um nostalgia for um a, a bygone age Perhaps where cinema was uh bit more perhaps interactive the fact that you would have live piano performances alongside the the films and i guess the staff who are still working at the the bijou it implies that they've been there for you know an extremely long time you know since the the coming of sound in the in the late 20s and 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 early 30s and i think it really fits the you know the surroundings it's very clear that the bijou is the, the cinema of the the past it's you know it's more set up for that kind of performance, and that's contrasted against the you know the grand, which is um, you know set up like I said before for more uh, modern films with things like uh, with things like cinemascope. I think you know even in the reviews that I read of the the film, most people commented on that scene and you know said it was one of the of
0: those, um, one of the few kind of very moving scenes uh, in the film. Like far far be it from me to put words in your mouth, Sam, but. Could you say that if the 1950s was a, a time of sharp decline and potentially kind of quite a high level of closure of the smaller, more kind of down-to-earth cinemas? Like, could you classify the 1950s as a time of of nostalgia for old cinemas? Like, the the, the film is, after all, about the plucky underdog being the small cinema, you know, trying to survive in this in this modern world. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a very
1: good question. It's it's very difficult to know exactly what cinema goers thought at at that time. Uh, but one thing that I've done in my research is to record uh, oral history interviews with people who went to the went to the cinema in the nineteen fifties. And of course, there is nostalgia for for older cinemas, but there is also a reason why a lot of them closed down, and you know, a lot of people said that they. At that time, they you know they weren't that bothered that a lot of these venues had had closed down because you know that was just the way things were were headed at at the time, and it just seemed natural that these older, more um kind of down at hill venues should should make way for the for the grander cinemas that offered uh, a better service. I think, you know, that said, obviously looking back now, people, you know, regret that a lot of them um, were were knocked down and, and not preserved, and, and there's a feeling that we perhaps should have done more as a society to protect that that cinema heritage. So so I think, yeah, in answer to your question, yes and no, there was obviously <laughs> nostalgia, otherwise uh, otherwise they wouldn't have included that scene in the, in the film, but I think there was also an acceptance that um, a lot of these cinemas no longer would no longer fit for purpose
2: so speaking about the the kind of comic elements of the film sam one of the the, the things that really sticks in the mind is the uh, the mess that the projectionist makes of uh, of keeping the film in one in one piece and the kind of the trouble that they have with the projecting equipment i'm wondering if you could say a little bit about the kind of the role of the projectionist in in the 1950s or in in kind of old cinemas how how important how, how difficult a job was it to be a projectionist?
1: Yeah, I mean, at that time, it was um, a skilled profession. Um, at least the the projectionists who I've talked to in my uh, research often took great pride in, in projection. Um, to them, it wasn't just about projecting the film. It was about kind of showmanship and making sure that everything was presented in, uh, in a proper fashion and that they did uh, a good job. At that time, um, there's also there's a really interesting project uh, at Warwick University on the history of projectionists uh, and on their website. They have lots of, uh, of pictures and interviews if anyone is interested in the in the history of, of projection in the film. They have a rather incompetent projectionist named Mr. Quill, who is played by uh, Peter Sellers, uh, who is uh, an alcoholic who agrees to uh, give up alcohol when the uh, when the Bijou um, reopens. In the in the film, the projection equipment is it looks very old. You know, the, there's, there's a scene where the projector um, breaks down, um, and the audience kind of sarcastically cheer when this when this happens. Uh, also, one of the most uh, idiosyncratic features of the of the cinema is that it's uh, right next to a railway line, and every time a train goes past, Peter Sellers has to grab onto the projector to stop it from uh, from shaking. But I think the fact that it is, um, you know, a, I suppose a quite difficult task and something that requires proper training is shown when Peter Sellers kind of slips back into to old habits and drinks almost an entire bottle of, of, of whiskey. And uh, Matt is uh, forced to take over the projection for, for a night um, and, well, completely, uh, completely fails to um, to do it and um, the film goes upside down, the sound goes out of sync with the, with the film. And again, this is something that is, you know, played for, for laughs uh, in the film.
2: Sam, um, in terms of kind of some of the, the films that are being shown in the, in the bijou, uh, for kind of move, moving along to another kind of topic, I suppose, my kind of impression of the films shown is that it almost doesn't seem to matter what the films are, It seems to be more a kind of the actual activity of going to the cinema is the real issue. You know, when the kind of projector uh, fails multiple times, it's more of a kind of source of fun than, you know, I can imagine going to the cinema these days and if the projector wasn't working, people being quite annoyed that, uh, you know, their their experience was was spoiled in that way. Do you think it was a, a different people went to the cinema for different reasons in the 1950s?
1: Yeah, no, I, I absolutely. I mean, like I said, at the beginning of the 1950s, people were more likely to go to the cinema as a habitual practice. And, you know, lots of people went for, for social reasons. And if you went to your local neighbourhood cinema, you might not necessarily be going because there was a particular film playing. Um, You might be going just because you expected to see, uh, a, you know, a programme of films at that at that time. So especially back in the in the early 1950s, you wouldn't just be going to see a single film there would be a main feature, a second feature. Often there would be cartoons, shorts, travelogues, that kind of things. Um, newsreels, which is also something that you, you see in the film. And I suppose among cinemas of the kind of the the bijou, you would have continuous performance. So what that means is that the films would essentially play on a loop and people could enter the cinema whenever they whenever they wanted. So lots of people would just pay um, and enter the film halfway through so one of the most common phrases that people uh, uh recall about the 1950s is this is where i came in so you might just watch the second half of a film wait around to see the other supporting films watch the first half of the film that you came to see and then and then leave at that point and that was seen as a
0: perfectly um uh, normal film I, so, sorry so i need to i need to understand this a bit more so uh... <laughs> Is that because they had already seen the first half at another point, and they'd kind of nipped off to go to the shops, and um, but they knew that this the second half of the film that they'd seen the first half of would be being played, you know, a few hours later. So they would just kind of they would kind of come back in to see what the character had got up to and what had happened to them, something like that.
1: No, no. So they would generally stay in the stay in the cinema for the whole length of the the program. So let's say you have a, a first feature, a second feature, and then a news reel. If you come in halfway through the first feature, you would watch the second half of that first feature, then watch the second feature, then watch the news reel, and then the last thing you would do would watch the the first half of the first feature, and then you would you would leave. Of course, the start times starting times were advertised. Lots of people did come for the beginning of the of the film, but lots of cinemas you know, just played a program on a on a continuous loop throughout the day
0: okay I the, I the I think we could almost spend the rest of the show like go, <laughs> going through I there are some things that did kind of strike the modern viewers particularly exotics. So, like Morris has mentioned about the fact that you know lots of people were talking the way through that there was a projector breaking but nobody seemed to mind like something that I don't know if you picked up on this Morris but um the Nash anthem playing at the ends that was mm. I, I didn't realize that is that something I'm assuming they put that in there because that happens Sam uh, was this mandatory at the end of every in every cinema showing um I don't
1: think it was it wasn't mandatory but it was something that was uh generally done by by cinemas at the end of the night they would play the the national anthem and um a picture of the the king or or from nineteen fifty two the the queen would be shown on the on the screen. Um and as you see in the the film, it's most commonly associated with a rush to leave the cinema <laughs> uh, because if if people stayed while the national anthem was playing, then they would be expected to to stand. Yes, yeah, so this is obviously played for laughs in the in the film just before the national anthem started you know people are literally you know jumping over each other to to make sure that they're not in the cinema for when it when it um for when it starts. But I guess what the the film, you know, obviously for, for obvious reasons, just plays it for for laughs. But you know, when I talk to people in the nineteen fifties, some people do talk about the fact that there were, you know, tensions. So, for instance, people who had um, served in the war might be more keen to to pay respect to the national anthem and saw kind of young people running out as uh, as being disrespectful and and that kind of thing. Um, and I've also done a lot of research on um, on Northern Ireland, and and that was a the national anthem was obviously a controversial um, issue in that part of the of the UK for
0: obvious reasons. At what point did that practice of playing the anthem start to fade out, Sam? I think the general sense I get is that it started to peter out during the
1: uh, during the 1960s. Again, I don't. There wasn't any kind of dictat that said you know you had to or kind of inform cinemas that they should stop. But I get the sense that it was just. Uh, practice that became um, old-fashioned, uh, became to be seen as old-fashioned during the 1960s.
2: One other thing that uh, I think some modern viewers might pick up on is that, Sam, is the presence of the, the cinema owner within the uh, the audience almost standing at the back and the kind of person personal interest in, in the films and in the, in the film goers. Was this kind of fairly typical of, of the 1950s?
1: Yeah, I think the the cinema owner had a far more uh, far greater presence than they would now for for instance. I mean again lots of the people I talked to in the history interviews uh, mentioned the fact that they recall the cinema managers, you know, being there in the lobby to, to, to greet cinema goers. Um and they would often, you know, chat with them and and get feedback um from them about the about the cinema. I think this is especially the case in uh, Saturday morning matinees. Yeah, these were screenings that were run especially for children on the on the, on the weekend and the cinema managers would be a big part of those. They would um kind of stand on stage and kind of MC the event and, and give out prizes and lead children in songs and in that kind of thing. And I think this is something that's especially associated with uh, with smaller um, neighbourhood cinemas. And and again this is something that's shown in the in the film. So um Hardcastle, the manager of the the Grand, he's seen as a much more kind of hard-nosed businessman who really only cares about um and making money and isn't
0: necessarily that interested um in the needs of his patrons. So, Sam, I think, um, so maybe we can, now th- this could be a time to you know, broaden, zoom out the lens a little bit, because there are also, as well as having loads of details about cinema going in the 1950s there's also lots of details about popular culture in the 1950s which i think we'd both really like to, to take this opportunity to ask you about to stay with films for the moment um westerns you like watching this film you would think that that's the only film that people ever watch because i think every film that is screened in the in the bijou is a western so um did they show that because that was just what was on on at the time, or was would again would people watching this film in the nineteen fifties have kind of picked up on maybe a particular message that they were trying to to say about the Bijou by by there only being westerns being played on at the, at the cinema?
1: Yeah, so I think it's quite funny the westerns you see. Um, they aren't real films; they're kind of mock westerns which have been created just for the. Ah,
0: okay, so I, I had to the... pick that up at all. So
1: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and they, I think they're kind of designed to look like uh, probably older films that were made before the the nineteen fifties. They almost look like nineteen thirties style westerns, which were you know yeah, very popular, um, especially with with younger audiences. I mean. Westerns were still popular in the in the nineteen fifties, so I don't know things like Shane or or Rio Bravo, but you know these were kind of different type of westerns, ones that are being shown at the at the Bijou in the in the film. Um, I think the the implication is that perhaps these are some of the only films that are available to them. You know, the older, cheaper films, uh, in comparison to the the Grand. There's one point in the in the film where the Spencers go to the Grand on on what they describe as a um as a busman's holiday to, I suppose, do a bit of uh, research. And you can see from the poster on the outside of the building that they're showing Danny Kaye's uh, mm-hmm. Knock on Wood, which I've done some research, and that was one of the most popular films of, of 1954. So you can see from that that The Grand is uh, able to access, you know, the newest, most popular films, So I suppose the Bijou is left with uh, kind of B films, older westerns, you know, anything that it can it can get its hands on. I think another another key point, perhaps you were going to mention this as well, is that they use the westerns almost as a as a sales tactic. So, um, a lot of these westerns are obviously these westerns take place in very hot you know, desert locations, um, and while the films are playing, they turn the heating up in the in the cinema in order to encourage people to to buy more uh, ice cream. So it's. Implied that you know other cinemas at the time might have used this as a as a sales ploy, but again, you know, given the nature of the film, it's obviously played for laughs.
2: Sam, it's interesting. I, I thought that the film that they show, the silent film in the Bijou at night, coming through the Rye, uh, an old, you know, British film, and it seems like most of the popular films uh, that are being shown for the paying public, both in the Bijou and perhaps at the Grand as well, are, are, are American films. I'm wondering if this is Anything to do with kind of the British cinema industry struggling to cope with Americanization if that was any kind of issue at the time,
1: yeah, I mean certainly, well, you know from you know the moment that you know cinema became a popular form of entertainment, American films were generally um, more appealing than the you know British counterparts. I think this became um that that was obviously a source of concern to to many people especially after the switch from silent to sound cinema when american films became audibly american for the first time and people perhaps heard american accents for the for the first uh for the first time that that said um i think there were a significant number of british films that were very popular in the in the 1950s so um, for instance, lots of the World War Two films that were made in the nineteen fifties, things like uh, um, the Dam Busters uh, and Reach for the Sky, were were incredibly um, uh, popular. Also, many many British comedies, well, including the Ealing comedies, but also things like the Doctor films starring uh, uh, Dirk, Dirk Bogard. Um, so yeah, I mean American. Americanisation has always been sort of a fear amongst um, social elites for the for the whole of the of the twentieth century, and American films were generally the most uh, uh, uh popular. But the nineteen fifties was certainly a decade where there were lots of very
0: successful uh, British films. Sam, something that um, some other of the kind of popular element aspects. Um... That come up in the film this this time looking at the audience rather than what's on screen so did i did I notice some teddy boys in the in the audience
1: yeah I think you uh, i think you did Phil um yes yeah, so i mean for the for the listeners who aren't really familiar with teddy boys uh um were i guess this was a kind of form of youth culture that emerged in the in the 1950s uh young teenagers would wear um, Edwardian jackets and uh drainpipes drainpipe trousers and have um what's called a da haircut which da stands for duck's ass, which is basically where all your hair is kind of uh <laughs> greased backwards um, yeah hopefully you can kind of uh, imagine what that what that looks like there's a real moral panic around uh around teddy boys at that at that time and there were lots of newspaper articles in the 50s uh where cinema cinema managers expressed their concerns about teddy boys doing things like slashing seats in the in the in the cinema, and there were lots of examples of um, cinemas prohibiting Teddy Boys from from entering their, their 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 cinemas. But I think really the the kind of moral panic that was created around Teddy Boys was much larger than the actual uh, the actual threat that they presented at that time. But it would have been um, for the, those people who were watching the film in nineteen fifty seven would certainly have been aware of of Teddy Boys.
0: Yeah, so I'm just trying to just trying to think so. It's a comic film. I think for us, they look like teenagers getting up to stuff that teenagers do. Would a nineteen fifty-seven viewer, again, have maybe picked up on other things that the the film was trying to say about? Uh, so, for example, that it was in a really rough neighbourhood. That actually, you know, that um, this guy from affluent south of England was living on the, you know, on the the front line of. You know, a bad neighbourhood. Would it? Would you go that far?
1: It's difficult to, to to tell, really. I think it the film definitely does try to play up those those class differences. Some of the things that have been written about the film seem to suggest that this was due to the fact that the screenwriter was American and kind of looking at this from an outsider's perspective, and therefore was more inclined to play up the the class angle within the the comedy of the film.
0: Yeah, I think. I'm not sure that that's necessarily something that a modern viewer would fix on that as well as being a so it's fish out water in as much as it's somebody who can't operate a cinema trying to run a run a cinema but maybe what you're saying is that it's also about somebody having to kind of slum it a little bit in quite a um, in quite an alien environment that a working class district of a of a northern town is that again I'm I don't want to put words in your mouth, Sam. Um,
1: I, I think that, you know, seems like a, a fairer a fair assessment. Again, it's very difficult to know exactly what audience was a would have thought at the time. Um, in terms of the, the reviews, I don't think that was something that was really mentioned um that much. I think people just saw it more as a kind of general fish out of water comedy than some kind of class satire. But I think looking back that element is definitely there.
2: Um, do you think possibly there could be a little dig at the class angle when um, some of the audience members try to pay through through barter? Is that, <laughs> is that a is that a normal way of paying your uh, cinema ticket? Yeah.
1: yeah, so I guess it's one of the more um, idiosyncratic uh, elements of the cinema is that. They've been known to accept uh, goods in exchange for for tickets. So you see lots of customers coming in with, uh, well, livestock and, and and other kind of strange things, kind of food, um, uh, in exchange for attendance at at the, at the cinema. I mean, that's not something that I've uh, I've come across. It, 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 it <laughs> may have happened, um, but I think the the important point um, from a historical perspective is that they mention in the film that this was a way to avoid uh, entertainment tax. So at that time there was a sales tax on all cinema tickets and this was a really big um, financial issue for cinemas at this time they really resented the fact that they had to pay this tax on the sale of 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 cinema tickets and the film seems to imply that they would do almost anything to to get um to get around paying the the tax I mean, especially you know a smaller cinema that may have struggled to to make ends meet
0: we're getting Towards the end of the show, um, I think we can in, we can indulge in a bit of trivia at this point. So, um, but, um I, I described it as being set in the North Midlands. I'm not sure what somebody from Stoke would would feel about me saying the North Midlands, but um, it did strike me that there aren't that many films that I can think of that are set in Stoke. As a as a historian of cinema, Sam, can you think of any <laughs> others? Um, any significance to um, it being set in Stoke um, that you, that you can think of. Well, I suppose
1: the first part of your question you know, are there other films set in Stoke? So the only other one that I can think of is a film called The Card, starring uh, Alec Guinness, which is actually set. Well, it says it's set in the Five Towns, um, which seems obviously like some kind of uh, alternative name for for Stoke. I think there actually were a few films in the later fifties set in uh well North Midlands as as you put, it, especially <laughs> the kind of uh, kind of kitchens kitchen sink social realist dramas that emerged. So, um, you know, things like um Saturday night and Sunday morning is set in uh, in Nottingham and uh going into the sixties, you know, the loneliness of the long distance runner, they you all seem to be set in that in that part of the world, but obviously they're very uh, they're very different films. I mean, I'm not sure that the film tells us that much specifically about the North Midlands at that time. I think it's used to, uh, I suppose, emphasise the differences, perhaps, between the kind of middle middle class southern couple and you know more working class patrons of the cinema that they
0: uh, that they inherit. Like, unless Morris has a burning question, I, I think there was just one other small trivia point I, I did want to ask Sam, So. It, it, it is a beautiful cinema, isn't it? The Bijou. I'm not sure that it's that it was filmed in the real cinema. Is that correct? But maybe as part of your research for listeners, are there any uh, cinemas that you've been to or that you know of that are similarly beautiful? These old um, Victorian musicals that were converted into cinemas.
1: I think so. There are very few cinemas that remain from that um, from that period. I suppose one would be the Hyde Park picture house in in Leeds, which has a, a relatively similar look and is kind of on a you know street corner in a you know it's a local neighborhood cinema rather than a, than a city center um uh, cinema. I think most, you know, the cinemas that we tend to associate as being kind of classic cinemas are those, you know, built in the nineteen thirties with that kind of art deco um design. So so there are a few examples of of buildings, you know, in the style of the bees, that that remain, but not um not a great
2: deal. I should just uh, plug the uh, the Campbellton Picture House, uh, which is uh, from an area where some of my family are from. Uh, that's a, a lovely old cinema which has just been restored recently. So, uh, if you're ever in that uh, part of the well of Kintyre, then I would recommend uh, giving it a look.
0: Okay, I'll try and make my uh, my way up there at some point. <laughs> so. I think this leaves us with our, our final question of the day, which was also our first. So, so Sam, you've told us the long version. What about in maybe three key points? So what, what does um, the smallest show tell us about nineteen fifty cinema going?
1: Well, firstly, I think it shows us some of the anxieties that cinema exhibitors um, had at that at that time. But at the same time, it also shows a willingness to poke fun at themselves and the troubles that some cinemas were were facing at that at that time um i think it's one of the very few british films that shows the social practices of of cinema going so some of the things we mentioned like running out during the national anthem but also the cinema as a, as a courtship venue um which is which is mentioned in the in the film as well and and yeah i think yeah it's one of the very few um, self-reflective films that really investigates you know what was the most popular commercial leisure activity for a large part of the of the 20th century
0: well thank you very much sam that was the historian's cuts uh asking the question what does the smallest show on earth tell us about cinemas and cinema going in post-war britain uh join us again for another episode thank you